The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only and will contain strong and explicit language and topics. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hey, this is the Spaghetti Podcast, and I'm your host, Chef D. In case you're wondering what this is all about, we basically take stuff, throw it against a wall, and see what sticks. Primarily, we talk about current events and news, but we could pretty much talk to you about anything. So uh, feel free to sit back, listen, and enjoy, and try not to laugh or cry too hard on with the show. Oh, man, this is your boy, Chef D. I do have a very informative show for you today. The sauce is cooking. Only two subjects we're going to talk about today, and there's some other things that we're going to get into on further episodes, but two really important things in the news going on. The biggest that we're going to talk about on this episode, and this is why the sauce had to simmer, y'all. We're going to talk about the Trump impeachment timeline. So any of you that uh, are confused about what was going on or what is going on with the whole Trump impeachment thing, we're going to try to get you caught up as fast as we can and talk just a little bit about what the future may hold for our illustrious president cheeto chef d is in the house and the sauce is cooking y'all so get ready the spaghetti podcast is on Hey, for those of you listening on the actual Anchor app, you may have heard a a little snippet of a song called True Dog, which is actually rather apropos for this next news story. True Dog, of course, being one of the monikers of uh, Toby McKeon's son. Toby McKeon being a rapper and a vocal artist um, in his uh, own right, also known as Toby Mac but also was part of the um, huge Christian group, uh, DC Talk, way back in the 90s and early aughts. And of course, um, him and his son have been in the news a little bit lately in a very tragic way, which you're about to hear about. So I just want to let you know why that song was in there. So on with the show. Hey guys, Chef D here from the Spaghetti Podcast. Uh, It's been a a bit since uh, I've done a podcast, but I was on my way home here, sitting at some uh, traffic lights. Uh, By the way, totally been meaning to do a podcast, but it just hasn't happened. But I'm on my way home here and um, happened to glance down at my NBC News app and just happened to see some pretty breaking news for me. Some of you uh, know that um, I am a Christian and that I grew up an evangelical Christian, actually grew up in the Southern Baptist Church and was a big, huge proponent uh, and a fan of um, contemporary Christian music, Christian rock, and um, one of my favorite groups slash bands was DC Talk who arguably has what many would consider the greatest Christian rock album of all time, which came out in 
1995 um, called Jesus Freak. Well, the group consists of, or consisted, they have done some reunions, but uh, of three people. There is the rapper whose name is Toby Mac, that's his uh, MC name, and also uh, Michael Tate, who is also does mostly the some does a lot of vocals as well as uh, Kevin Max. Um, Toby Max's real name is Toby McKeon, and a few years ago, um, well, after DC Talk went on hiatus, uh, Toby Mac went uh, solo and has done several solo albums. One of the albums that I had, um, he introduced his son, who's name, uh, his MC name is True Dog. Real name is uh, Truest McKeon. Um, and was glancing at my NBC News app here, and it says Truett Foster McKeon, 21 son of Christian rap artist Toby Mack, died at his Nashville home on Wednesday. Cause of death is unknown, but the Davidson County Medical Examiner's Office confirmed his date of death to NBC News. A representative for Toby Mack, whose real name is Toby McKeon, also confirmed the death to NBC News. Truett Foster McKeon is the eldest of Toby Mack's five children and was an aspiring musician. He released under different names, including Truett Foster, True Dog, True, and Shiloh, according to the Tennessean. Toby Mack, who has not released a statement on his son's death, has spoken about their relationship in the past year while promoting the album The Elements. The rapper told the Digital Journal last October that the song Scars, his favorite from the album, was written for his son. The song includes the lyrics, Life ain't got no sequel, we all broken people, the only road to found is lost. Scars is deeply personal, and for me, it is about my son, he said. He left home and he is doing his own thing now. Watching people you love go through hard things is tough, and I want people to know that they are not alone, he added. So, um, Truist McKeon, dead at 21. It's a very, very sad story, and I'm sure, uh, especially in evangelical Christianity, it's really going to um, be huge news for a long time. Very, very sad. Um, So... um, I uh, just wanted to say, and I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit uh, shot by this. Things like this um, do happen from time to I mean, they happen in everybody's life. But um, it's, it's unusual for a um, such a high-profile uh, person like Toby Mac in the evangelical world, who, by the way, I've seen in concert as a solo artist and... Uh, as with DC Talk several times. So it's unusual that something like such a tragic thing happens to uh, someone like Toby Mack, uh, such a high-profile person. Um, CCM, very interestingly enough, has had quite a few tragedies and and some scandals. I know back in uh, 1982, Keith Green who is an amazing artist, has a very high, beautiful tenor voice, and uh, has done a... He, he was killed in a plane crash, and um, was was one of these guys who was part of the Jesus movement, the 50s and 60s, which you'll have to Google. 
he uh, uh, was tragically killed in an accident. And of course, a lot of people remember who in a Jeep accident in 1997, um, and who is to this day one of my favorite artists. Um, they, he, he, he's just one of those guys who was so down to earth and genuine and real about his faith. And actually, for the for what I've heard, so with Keith Green, I was not introduced to Keith Green's music until way after his death, because um, I was quite young when he died. But, um, and then of course Christianity. Uh, CCM has had its share of scandals. Uh, one of the, one that comes to mind is uh, the divorce of Amy Grant, her first husband and her divorced. And this was, you know, way back in the day when divorce was not as common as it is today. And uh, for those of you that don't know, she um, divorced, and there was rumors of infidelity. Nothing ever proven, and you know it doesn't really matter at this point anyway. I don't think. But uh, she is now married to country singer Vince Gill, and they've been married for years. Um, and um, I like Vince Gill. He's a pretty nice guy. He got pretty uh, animated uh, a few years ago when the Westboro Baptist assholes protested Amy Grant's concert because <laughs> she... Uh, because she's divorced. Basically, they said, you know, divorced women go to hell. And, of course, they do. So, um, well, that was interesting just about had an accident. Because uh, I can't see around this guy who's doing an illegal U-turn. So, anyway. Um, I'll put myself out here again. See if we're not going to get killed. Anyway. And then another, believe it or not, scandal also has to do with Christian singer, singer Sandy Patty who also, I believe, went through a divorce. Um, and again, rumors of infidelity. I think probably the biggest one, which is kind of an interesting scandal for me, was uh, back in the l- early 90s. Uh, there was a singer named Michael English, who was who is now back doing music. Um, but it'll tell you how long it took him. He just recently, within the last five years or so, started doing music again. Um, but he... Um, had he was a solo artist. He won several Dove Awards, and Dove Dove Award is like the equivalent of a Christian Grammy, I guess. And it's a Gospel Music Association award. And uh, he had an affair. He was married, I should say. Had an affair with um, a member of the group First Call who I actually saw in concert. I never saw Michael English in concert, I don't think, but I did hear First Call in concert way back when I was like 14. So, um, and I I remember this particular um, (laughs) uh, lady very well because I think her first name was Mary Beth and she was extremely attractive. And Michael English, for what it's worth, is not a bad-looking guy himself. So, But they had an affair and I believe... It resulted, if I remember correctly, it resulted in a pregnancy. That's actually how the affair came to light. And there may or may not have been an abortion there. I'm not sure. But um, it was a probably one of Christian music's biggest scandals. There's The, the thing is with there's all these little scandals. Like um, 
they were there were this is funny there were pictures taken of Amy Grant on a beach in the early 80s when she was drinking a beer and of course to an Episcopalian or uh, another type of Christian like a Catholic Christian or somebody else drinking a beer is no big deal but to evangelical Christians back in the 80s who were teetotalers and alcohol was the devil that was a pretty big issue so um you know, and I also remember there was some uh, controversy back in the mid '90s when the Christian group Jars of Clay um, was touring with some secular bands, and Budweiser was sponsoring the tour or some stupid shit. Anyway, um, I said all that to say that um, Christian music definitely has its scandals. Obviously, at this point, we don't know the cause of death for uh, Truist McKeon and. Um, I don't even want to speculate. It could be anything. It could be nothing. But it is certainly a tragedy for um, the McKeon household. It's a tragedy for um, everybody involved. Um, The Christian music family tends to be kind of tight. So it's a very sad day for them um, and for everybody involved. So... We will uh, continue to follow the story, but I wanted to um, let y'all know that, and hopefully we'll um, we'll get back to uh, another podcast soon. Now I just have to go back and turn this off. Peace. Hey y'all, Chef D here. Um, Here's something I've been wanting to do for a while, and uh, we're going to jump into this, and hopefully I'm going to do this before the um, battery in my phone dies. Um, The impeachment proceedings, um, the impeachment inquiry, I should say, uh, against President Trump continues to unfold in a dramatic and rapid way, and Literally, it has unfolded so quickly that it has been very hard to keep up with what has actually happened, who has actually responded, and things like that. So, what I want to do here on the Spaghetti Podcast today is to talk about that timeline just a little bit so that we all can sort of get a better grasp of the situation. In the history of our country... Um, Only two people have been impeached. None of them have been impeached successfully. Essentially what impeachment means is that you face a sort of trial in the Senate. And the outcome of that trial um, is whether or not you are going to stay in office or whether you are going to be forced to leave the office. In the 1860s, I want to say specifically 1869 maybe, I might be getting the date wrong on that, President Andrew Johnson, who was the president who became, uh, the person who became president after Lincoln's assassination, was brought up on impeachment charges and the impeachment was almost successful. It failed by only one vote. And the other person who has been brought up in impeachment was President Bill Clinton. And um, the uh, vote was basically to not remove him from office, but he did receive some other sort of punishment. Uh, President Nixon was headed toward an impeachment inquiry. And 
um, was inevitably going to lose, um, and that is why he chose to resign rather than lose um, a lot of the uh, benefits you have from for being an ex-president as well uh, as not you know going out in shame. He kind of chose to go out on his own terms. So now we have a president who is facing an impeachment inquiry. And what it basically comes down to is a, um, in my personal opinion, President Trump could have been impeached for other things. I think maybe a few courts have decided differently, but nevertheless, I believe that he could have. So um, let's see. Um, I'm going to go all the way back to... Um, this is uh, the timeline as best as I can put it together from a, a news article. So bear with me. Um, back in March of 2014, after the Russia-backed government falls in Kiev, Russia invades and annexes Crimea, which has been part of Ukraine. Um, and the whole world freaked out, said it was not right, cried foul, uh, not a good situation the U.S. orders sanctions against Russia. As the turmoil takes over Ukraine and Russia-backed forces move into more of the country, Hunter Biden, who is Joe Biden's son, and Joe Biden, of course, former vice president and Democratic candidate for president, takes a paid position of a company called Burisma, which is a Ukrainian natural gas company. The owner of Burisma, a guy by the name of Mykola Shlakevsky, I hope I'm saying that right, who actually served in a previous Russia-backed government in Ukraine, was under investigation by British authorities over corruption claims and was criticized by the U.S. ambassador at the time, Jeffrey Pyatt. However, no specific wrongdoing was ever proved. In August of 20, let's see here, uh, August 21st, 2018, Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign chairman, is found guilty of bank and tax fraud and hiding foreign bank accounts. Prosecutors said Manafort collected $65 million in foreign bank accounts from 2010 to 2014 and then lied to banks in order to take out more than $20 million in loans after his Ukrainian, they keep coming up in this, political work dried up in 2015. In April, on April the 14th, in an interview with The Hill, um, the uh, Ukraine Prosecutor General Yuri Lutsenko alleges, without evidence, that Joe Biden in 2016 pressured former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko to fire Ukraine's Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin in a bid to stop a criminal probe that involved Hunter Biden. The facts are that a European Union, I'm sorry, the facts are that the European Union, a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers and Ukrainian activists all favored pressuring the government to oust Shokin for not prosecuting corruption. Letsenko later, later tells the Washington Post of Hunter Biden, from the perspective of Ukrainian legislation, he did not violate anything. I think it needs to be pointed out here that in, in the in the the sense of all fairness, what we are, what people are alleging here is not that Hunter Biden is uh, completely innocent 
in all of this in the sense that what he did was right. Um, I just want to point this out. To be honest with you, I don't know where the ethical lines fall here. However, it what has been determined, at least at this point in the timeline, is that what Hunter Biden did was not criminal. So that's an important distinction to make here. On June the 12th, President Trump tells ABC's George Stephanopoulos that he would want to hear he would want to hear it if foreign governments offered him damaging information about his opponents in the 2020 presidential election. Then on July 25th, Trump and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky talk over the phone, and a readout of the call between Trump and Zelensky is posted on the official site of the president of Ukraine, and it includes that, quote, Donald Trump is convinced that the new Ukrainian government will be able to of Ukraine, complete investigation of corruption cases, which inhibited the interaction between Ukraine and the USA. In September, the White House will release a rough transcript revealing that Trump pressed Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden and his son Hunter. July 26, the U.S. Special Envoy for Ukraine, Kurt Volker, accompanied by U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, met with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky in Kiev. According to Zelensky's website, they discussed military topics. According to Zelensky's statement after the meeting, which does not mention the corruption investigations, Volker and Sondland reportedly advised the Ukrainian leadership on how to navigate Trump's demands of Zelensky, according to the whistleblower complaint. Speaking of, on August the 12th, 2019, a whistleblower files a complaint with the Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson. In August, Trump is criticized on Capitol Hill for blocking military aid to Ukraine, effectively pausing disbursement of the funds during a formal review process. CNN later reports Trump first put a hold on the funds in July, roughly a week before his phone call with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. September 9th, the Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson notifies House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff of a quote-unquote urgent concern that Acting Director of National Intelligence Joseph McGuire has overruled. Also on September 9th, three House committees launch an investigation of efforts by Trump, Rudy Giuliani, who is uh, President Trump's personal lawyer, and, of course, former mayor of New York City, and others, to pressure the Ukrainian government to assist the president's re-election efforts. The committees request information about Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. September 18th, it is reported by the Washington Post that the whistleblower complaint involves a Trump communication with a foreign leader and a promise made. Uh, the next day, September 19th, the Washington Post and the New York Times report that the whistleblower's concern was partly in regard to Ukraine. Three days later, on September the 22nd, Trump acknowledges that he discussed Joe Biden in a July call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Two days later, on September 24th, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announces a formal impeachment inquiry into Trump. The next day, the White House releases its transcript of Trump's call with the Ukrainian President Zelensky, 
And then the next day, September 26, Acting Director of National Intelligence, Joseph McGuire, briefs the House Intelligence Committee defending his decision not to give Congress the whistleblower complaint earlier. And he also defends the whistleblower. On September the 26th, again the same day, the whistleblower complaint is declassified and released to the public. The next day, by CNN's tallying more than 218 House members, a majority, but almost all Democrats, support an impeachment inquiry. October 1st, Trump says the impeachment inquiry is part of a coup, quote-unquote, effort, and directly targets the whistleblower, saying he wants to interview him or her. The next day, October the 2nd, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo acknowledges during a news conference in Italy that he was on the, 20, the July 25th call between Trump and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and defends it as representative of U.S. policy to Ukraine. The next day, October the 3rd, Trump openly asked China and Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden while talking to reporters at the White House. So a little comment on that. This is basic Trump um, modus operandi, where he doubles down on what he did and honestly kind of thumbs his nose at the whole ethics part of this investigation. Kind of saying, hell yeah. Um, I probably did it, and not only did I do it, but I think China and Ukraine should investigate Joe Biden. And um, so there's that. On October the 6th, attorneys for the whistleblower say they are representing, quote-unquote, multiple officials relating to the original complaint. It's not clear if this means one additional person offering corroborating evidence or something else. Two days later, on October the 8th, the White House informs House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats running the impeachment inquiry that it will not cooperate in what it sees as an illegal effort setting up a likely court showdown over what the White House will be forced to provide and who can be compelled to testify. The State Department Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, who is mentioned in the whistle testifying before the House committees, which, by the way, puts him in a very awkward situation. So he's basically caught between the legislative branch of the government, Congress, and the executive branch of the government, President Trump. October 22nd, Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, tells impeachment investigators during closed-door testimony that U.S. Ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, the person called in the middle here, told him that U.S. military aid for Ukraine was specifically contingent, that's important words there, on a public promise by Ukraine to conduct investigations into the 2016 U.S. election and into Burisma. Taylor had, had documented his concerns about that contingency in text messages that were released early in the investigation. His testimony and detailed opening statement undercut the argument by the Trump administration that there was no quid pro quo holding the funding in exchange for the investigations. So that takes us up to the 22nd. And... As um, kind of a summary here, 
President Donald Trump still says there's nothing wrong with the phone call where he asked Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to investigate the former Vice President, 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden, as well as his son Hunter Biden. But it's against U.S. law for a candidate to solicit things of value from foreign entities, and House Democrats have opened an impeachment investigation over it. So, as far as I know, here's where we're currently at, and I sort of feel like I need to explain this a little bit in detail, because what I find is that people on both sides, both both conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats or other, don't always fully understand the process here. So, um, one of the things that Trump has said is that he has the right to face his accusers. In this situation, that is not true. This is not a criminal trial. This isn't technically even a civil trial. This is an impeachment inquiry which, think of it like a murder investigation. If it, if it were if it were a criminal trial and there was an investigation, we're only at the investigative level of this so far. So anytime, um, and we'll just say murder, not because I think Trump is a murderer, um, but because I'm just using this as an example. If, if you were to be investigated for murder, uh, detectives will go that they believe may either point toward you murdering this person or would exonerate you. And at no time during that investigation do you, as the murder suspect, have the right to confront that person. It's merely an investigation. Should that go to a criminal trial, the U.S. Constitution does guarantee the right for you to face your accuser. This has become increasingly uh, strained and questioned recently because of the Me Too movement. If a Usually a female um, has, uh, is a victim of sexual harassment or um, sexual assault or rape. Does the accused have the right to face that person that is accusing them, even though it may further traumatize the accuser? So that's a pretty big deal, right? So that's where we're at. So Trump doesn't have the right at this point to face his accusers, and Republicans, frankly, are just dead wrong with that. If this were to proceed to some sort of a criminal trial, then Trump would have that right. Okay. This, again, is an impeachment inquiry. This is the investigation that would lead up to what would be an impeachment trial if we get to that point. It is the job of the impeachment inquiry to determine whether or not there should be a trial for impeachment. It is a house. The house conducts the inquiry, uh, the house of representatives, which by the way, we always say Congress. And a lot of times when we say Congress, we are referring to both houses of the legislative branch. Uh, sometimes we're only referring to the house of representatives. Congress is technically both houses of the represent of, of the legislative branch, the House of Representatives, which is the one that is determined by population, and the Senate. So there are 435 members in the House of Representatives. There are 100 in the Senate. The House of Representatives, the one with the larger body, determines whether or not there is going to be a trial, and then it moves to the Senate where there, is, there would be a trial. 
So the question is, at this point, whether or not President Trump interfered or attempted to interfere in the upcoming the upcoming 2020 presidential election by pressuring a foreign entity, that of the government or leadership of Ukraine, to investigate Hunter Biden and his association or scandal or whatever uh, in the Ukraine thing in order to hurt Joe Biden's presidency. I'm going to be very honest here. I'm just going to be honest. Some of my liberal friends may not like this. It is a gray area. Um, But what I personally believe, and again, this is just my opinion, it does break the law. Um, But I, on some level, do see the Republicans' point. Like, look, he's, and I'm, I'm playing the devil's advocate here, the president is concerned about corruption. He's specifically concerned about corruption from people that the country. So he does this, but it does break the law. So the options we have here at this point is let's say the the impeachment inquiry does reach the point where the president is impeached and it goes to the Senate. The Senate will then decide, first of all, did the president break the law? In the case of Bill Clinton, they said, yes, the president perjured himself And I forget everything that happened to Bill Clinton, but I think one of the things he had to do was surrender his law license because he's guilty of perjury. But they also determined that it was not to such a level that he needed to be removed from office. So that's what the Senate's going to decide here. You know, they're going to decide whether or not President Trump broke the law. And if he did break the law, whether or not that is a large enough crime well, a large enough offense at this point, because we've got to be careful with our words, whether or not it was a large enough offense for him to be removed from office. Now, if they decide that it isn't him to be removed from office, that basically means nothing happens and the impeachment dies. And then, of course, President Trump still has to face re-election in 2020. It's probably going to hurt him one way or the other. The problem the president has right now is the problem he's always had. He continually sticks his foot in his mouth. And uh, considering that his foot is in his mouth and his mouth is in his head and his head is up his ass, then there's a problem for President Trump. You know my political leanings at this point. So if he doubles down on this, he's sort of seen as the anti-hero or the hero to some other people in the conservative movement. They're going to say, yeah, he may have broke the law, but it's a stupid law. And he his intentions were pure. And this is where the the application of the law comes in, you know. So you know, the judge has the right in any trial to say, yes, he broke the law. But the reasons that he broke the law were because of this. You know, in other words, it's wrong to shoot somebody. It's wrong to kill somebody. But if there were extenuating circumstances and the reasons that this person killed them, Maybe the person that shot them were under a great amount of mental stress, something like that. You know, they, there is extenuating circumstances that will affect the penalty. I'm honestly not sure if the impeachment uh, fails. In other words, they don't remove President Trump from office if they um, still have the option of pursuing criminal charges. And there's also 
and an ongoing legal debate about whether or not President Trump can face criminal charges while he's still in office. My personal opinion on that, and it is not based in the law, but I believe, well, sort of, I, I personally don't believe that the writers of the U.S. Constitution wanted a president to face criminal charges while he was in office simply because it's completely opposite of what they were trying to, it seems to me, completely just antithetical to what they were trying to do. So my personal opinion is if the president is to face criminal charges, he first needs to be removed from office. In other words, a sitting president should not face criminal charges until that sitting president is removed from office. And I personally think that at this point, and again, this is my opinion, it is complete political conjecture that it is almost inevitable at this point that President Trump will face an impeachment trial in the Senate. There is just too much evidence here to suggest, at least somewhat, that he did something at the very least unethical and at the greatest expense or at the greatest um, part uh, possibly criminal that could either lead to him being either removed from office um, or even face further criminal charges. So that's sort of where we're at. It's not a great place for our country to be. And of course, none of this, let's say this all went away today. It doesn't even touch what could possibly happen next year with the presidential election coming up. So if you are a political junkie like I am, this is amazing shit. There's no other way to get around it. It is just fucking amazing. And I used to follow politics like some guys followed sports. And to some extent, I still do. But <laughs> I'm just... It has been happening so fast. And I haven't been able to get my head around it. And I've been wanting to come on here and talk about it. But I thought, you know what? There's probably people that listen to this podcast that don't know exactly what's going on. They're just kind of getting bits and pieces. And there's so much political rhetoric and I do tend to have a brain that works somewhat in the legal realm. So, and there's something else that's really important for someone to understand when it comes to legal things. Um, and I think the case in point of this, by the way, of what I'm about to describe is the O.J. Simpson trial. When a lawyer goes in to, let's say, a prosecuting attorney goes into a court of law. Some of you are not going to like what I'm about to say. I'm just going to tell you now. It does not become about right or wrong. It doesn't even become about truth or untruth. It becomes about what the state can prove. So effectively what happened at the OJ trial is the state did not prove its case. The defense did an effective enough job in presenting what the American legal system calls reasonable doubt. In other words, they injected enough reasonable, that's the key word, doubt in there that when the jury went to deliberate, they could not say without a reasonable doubt 
I'm sorry. Did I say that right? They could not say without a reasonable doubt that OJ Simpson killed Nicole Brown Simpson. So effectively he goes free. Now, the other thing that happened is that OJ Simpson gets involved in a civil trial. Civil trials are different than criminal trials. In civil trials, you only have to prove a preponderance of the evidence. In other words, the evidence is weighted on a scale. So in a criminal court, you're innocent until proven guilty. Technically, you are in a civil court too, but it's easier to prove in a civil court than it is in a criminal court. In a criminal court, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. In a civil court, it's like, yeah, we can find you liable for the death of Nicole Brown Simpson for whatever reason, uh, whether he did it or he led to do it, and we can fine you, you know, an X amount of money. Now, whether or not that's ethical to do, that's a whole nother thing. Again, personally, I think if they're found non-guilty in a criminal trial, you should not be able to bring a civil trial for basically the same thing, but that's for the lawyers to figure out. For me, I'm just thinking about this whole Trump thing and my battery is getting low in my phone. So I need to wrap this up so we can put this away and then I can edit the podcast later, but that's where we're at with the Trump thing. So feel free to send me any questions that you may want to send me, uh, at the spaghetti podcast at gmail.com or hit me up at is it's it's spaghetti pod at Twitter? I think it's spaghetti pod. Yeah, spaghetti pod. At, uh, on, I'm sorry. Let's try that again. At spaghetti pod on Twitter. Don't send it to Twitter or don't send it to. I'm tired. It's Friday. Don't send it to spaghetti pod at. Send it to at spaghetti pod on Twitter. On Twitter, Twitter, and um, we'll be able to talk about this. I'm not sure if there'll be another segment with this podcast. So if there's not, I hope y'all have a great time. Um, and we'll see you next time right here on the Spaghetti Podcast. If not, we'll keep on jamming, right? Love, peace, and a pot of neck bones. All right, y'all, that's going to do it indeed for this episode of the Spaghetti Podcast where we just throw the shit at the wall and see what sticks. I hope it stuck to you this time. Hope you're caught up where you need to be on the whole Trump shit and all the Trump stuff going down. And hopefully we'll see you next time. I got a lot of stuff I still want to pack in and talk about on this podcast. So hopefully it's entertaining for you. Give me a shout out at the spaghetti podcast at gmail.com. Catch me on Twitter at spaghetti pod. And we'll see you right here next time on the spaghetti podcast. Love, peace and a pot of neck bones. We out. Thank you.